Caught Offside with Andrew Gunling and J.J. Devaney. Oh, yes. Caught Offside, a bonus podcast. Andrew Gunling here with you. J.J. will be along shortly. Uh, really, really excited about what we have for you here today on this pod, on this edition of Caught Offside. Uh, we had talked a little bit about Simon Cooper and the book that he has coming out called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. We had originally thought we were going to speak with him next week. Turns out with everything that's gone on with Messi and Barcelona, we were able to get this bumped up to today. Incredibly excited about it. Uh, this book is fascinating. The timing of it is obviously unbelievable, given everything that's going on with Messi and Barcelona and, of course, PSG as well. Uh, so we're extremely excited about this. Simon Cooper, the Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi, and the making and unmaking of the world's greatest soccer club. Uh, we'll bring that interview to you right now. Oh, back now, caught off side. JJ, we have been talking about this for, I think, over a week now. Um, basically, since the Messi news happened and we knew that we were going to have this person on the show, it's almost like Simon Cooper had some way coordinated this situation with Messi. He just has a book coming out now called The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Uh, we've been so excited to talk to Simon, given everything in the news and the nature of this book, and he's kind enough to join us now. Simon Cooper, what's up, man? How are you? Uh, very good, thanks. Talking to you directly from Spain, from Valencia. Yeah. Ah, the plot thickens. <laughs> um this book, like JJ and I, like I just said, we have started talking about this uh, probably about a week or so ago when we knew you were going to be coming on the podcast and the messy news has been so prevalent, obviously. And much of your book um, kind of covers the rise and almost unexpected fall of Barcelona. So I, I kind of want to start, given that the messy news has been so prevalent and it's the fall of Barcelona that seems to be most on people's minds. I kind of wanted to start there almost at the end of the story, the turning point for Barcelona of when things started to turn in this direction. Can you look at a particular transfer, a hiring, a decision? When did the turn occur? Well, in my book, I identify it as the departure of Neymar in 2017. And I think Messi would say the same, that Messi and Neymar are the ideal partnership. The young Neymar, the Neymar who is willing to run deep onto Messi's passes, the winger, the nippy winger with brilliant technique was the partner that Messi had always wanted to have. And Messi was just devastated when he left. And then to make things worse, almost immediately Barcelona blow all that money, waste the 220 million euros they get from Neymar on Coutinho and Dembele, who never really perform in the Camp Nou. And so that's the moment where the enormous riches of Barcelona, all this money coming in, starts to turn into debt and old failed players. Simon, one of the great things that you do in this book, and I'm enjoying it immensely, is you create a sense of what Barcelona is that I don't think a lot of people have. Um, it's this uh, self-contained, uh, almost uh, city nation with a small ruling class. And from that, they pluck their leaders, the bourgeois, as, as, as you call them in the book. Um, so is this, I suppose... Is what happened to Barcelona a consequence of plucking your leaders from this small amount of people that may not be football people? And you end up with Joseph Bartomeu, who maybe had not the decision-making nous that was needed. 
Look, I mean, Barcelona has been mismanaged, but many football clubs over time have been mismanaged with very different structures, much more corporate structures. Barcelona is not a corporation. It's not a business. It's a club, and that's also the beauty of it. And it's a democracy where the 150,000 members elect their president. And often they elect a president who's not good at running a football business, but that's also true of other football clubs which don't elect their president. Okay. So I wouldn't really blame the democracy aspect. I think the deeper problem is that when you're number one, and Barcelona were number one for many years, you know, from 2006, in a decade, they went four Champions Leagues, you stop thinking, you become lazy. And so Barcelona had the world's best youth academy, the Masia, everyone copied it. You know, every club from Liverpool to Bayern Munich flew in and hung around and saw what they were doing, copied this kind of university of the past. Barcelona played the football of the 21st century before the 21st century, you know, this high pace, pressing, fast passing football on the other team's half. Everyone copied it, did it better. And so when you're number one, you get lazy. And I think that's a lot of the story. When you're number one, the money pours in and you worry less about each individual dollar, how you spend it. And when Messi's father keeps coming to you every year, asking for pay rises for his son, you think, well, why not give it to him? I mean, the kid is the best player in the world. We're happy to have him here. And in the end, of course, you run out of money. Yeah, that, that aspect of Messi and his contract is, is very interesting to me because, like you say, his contract, by the end, it was astronomical. The financial number that he was on, was it part of the problem for Barcelona or because of just his mere presence with the club, what he brought in through jersey sales or marketing deals, was it almost was it a net positive for him, for them, even with that huge financial number? I mean, I spent two years going around Barcelona writing the book, and I've come to the conclusion that obviously in football, Messi is a net positive of a magnitude that we can't comprehend. I mean, this is the best player club relationship, the most productive player club relationship over 15 years in the history of football. No club has ever employed someone who's done so much for it. This is the second city of a mid-sized European country that's not very rich, and they were the best club in the world. So that Messi, more than any other individual, that's him. In financial terms, you end up destroying the club. So Messi made the club and he has helped to break it financially because he had this rolling contract. So every summer he was able to leave on a free transfer. And so every year, Jorge Messi, his dad, would say to the club, you know, my son, you might leave this summer, why don't you give him a pay rise? And then every other player in the squad wants a pay rise as well, you know, to keep not up with Messi because everyone understands Messi's salary is going to be the highest. But if Messi earns 100, I should earn 20. And so you end up with the highest salary bill in soccer and you can't afford it anymore. And then the pandemic comes and, you know, this one misfortune just sinks the ship. So Messi did more than anyone else make the club and more than anyone else break it financially. One thing I can't understand, Simon, is um, I, I keep thinking of... Uh, the scenes in the um, the Wizard of uh, Wall Street where uh, the Bernie Madoff character played by Robert De Niro is he's beginning to panic. The walls are closing in. And I keep thinking about Barcelona here. And Barcelona, what I discovered from your book is that the the board members are on the hook for losses. Yeah. Why, why wasn't there more of a sense of, of panic, of, 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 of urgency, or, or, or was there? Or did that, did that, did that just happen re recently? Yeah, I mean, if you become a director at Barcelona, so there's about 15 of them and the president, then every euro you lose, you have to pay back, according to the law, out of your own pocket. And so last year, you know, the pandemic obviously is a big part of it, but they lost nearly half a billion euros. 
you know, so you could lose more than your house. I mean, these are rich guys because the club is run by the rich local class. But yeah, they panic massively, which is why they arranged this very bizarre swap from Arturo going to Juventus, Pjanic coming to Barcelona, which is really concocted for accounting purposes to make the books look better. So yeah, I mean, these guys really panic. And a lot of the candidates and their potential directors running in the election for president this spring, they didn't really want to win. because They thought if we win, the club keeps losing money. I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose every cent in my savings accounts and more. And so people get very afraid. That's the Spanish law about member-owned clubs. And the two biggest member-owned clubs in the world are Barcelona and Real Madrid. Simon Cooper joining us here on Caught Offside, talking about his book, The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the Making and Unmaking of the World's Greatest Soccer Club. Um, Simon, with regards to Messi, just to view him from afar, he's always struck me as a, a fairly quiet, reserved, superstar who is tremendous at this sport loves the sport just wants to play the sport is that a false perception how involved is he in terms of what goes on behind the scenes with that club what what sort of level of power does he have within or did he have within barcelona i think that was a, a big way in my perception of barcelona changed while i was writing the book when i began i thought like you just said you know he doesn't really have much of a personality. He doesn't talk much. He just wants to play football. And uh, he, he doesn't really project himself beyond that. And I came away having spoken to dozens of people on the inside, staffers who'd known him before he's made his debut, presidents who worked with him, thinking this kid is the biggest power broker inside the club. I think there's some parallels. I don't really fully understand the Michael Jordan, Chicago Bulls relationship, but I think Jordan was a massive power broker at the Bulls. And Messi is really the dominant figure inside the club in that every coach they appoint every player they want to buy or sell every tactical change they make they think will leo like this and so the whole club for 15 years has had a kind of messy strategy of what our number one aim is to keep messy happy and of course you know we can now say it's ended up badly which it has but remember it worked out brilliantly for 15 years the Messi strategy for 15 years was the best man management project in soccer history. He runs the club, more not, not alone, but he's the most powerful figure for 15 years inside the club. Did you come across examples of, of ways in which they would bend over backwards, aside from upping his contract, other ways in which through the club they would bend over to keep him pleased? Well, one example is they buy Zlatan Ibrahimovic for, I think, something like 50 million euros. This is 2009, huge amount of money a top 10 player in the world, this the kind of star center forward. And within a couple of months, Messi says, you know what? My game is I cut him from the wing, I run into the middle. And when I cut into the middle, there's this massive Swede shouting, give me the ball. And Messi said, I don't like that. And so Barcelona said, okay, Messi, okay, Leo, we'll get rid of the Swede. And you can imagine many other clubs this wouldn't work. They would say to the player, you know what, live with it. We paid 50 million euros for him. He's top 10. You're just going to have to find a way to play with him. You're just a player. At Barcelona, Ibrahimovic, to his own shock, lasted one season because Messi didn't like him there. The other thing where Messi failed, but really put in a lot of, of his capital, political capital, was buying Neymar back in 2019. Messi says to Barcelona, Neymar is the guy I want to play with, get him back. Barcelona, the people who run the club, look at Neymar in 2019, think 27 years old, injured a lot, 200 million euro transfer fee. We don't want him. But they spend a whole summer pretending to buy him. So at the end of summer, they can go back to Leo and say, 
you know, Leo, we tried so hard, we did everything, but PSG wouldn't sell him. So you, Messi doesn't always get his way, but they always try and please him and often give him his way. They'll never appoint a coach he doesn't like. Villanova appointed because he was Messi's, in part, because he was Messi's favourite coach from Messi's teenage years. Uh, Tato Martino, guy with no reputation at all, appointed as coach because he knew the Messi's and he was from Rosario like them in Argentina. Simon, um, I'm, I'm curious about the, the mythos or, or the legend of uh, La Masia, the, the academy. Um, did that, there's, there's a great line in the book by uh, um, Jorge Valdano where he talks about um, the arrogance where um, uh, Barcelona used to be the, the minnow, the team that was picked upon, and now they're the arrogant team. Um, was there an arrogance coming out of, or, or a confidence coming out of, you know, Xavi, Iniesta, Busquets, and Messi, of that, that golden generation of graduates, that, hey, we can keep doing this. We don't need to play the game that the Manchester United's and the uh, Chelsea's are playing. Well, I mean, they were right. They, they had invented, or they had realised the Krautian vision, which Krauf develops in the 1960s at Ajax with the Venus Meatballs, of the football of the future which is we keep the ball, we play in the other team's half, we create passing triangles. Uh, when we lose it, we win it back in five seconds. And they did it perfectly. So they were right to be arrogant. But you're right that the club then thought, well, we can keep producing the world's best players. And of course, in 10 years, they haven't. You know, Busquets is the last great player to come out of the Masia. And what happened is that, you know, if you think of um, Flick, the Bayern coach, who's now become the Germany coach, earlier in his coaching career, he goes to the Masia, he spends a week or a couple of weeks hanging around absorbing the secrets coaches from all over the world are doing it and you see that england and germany which have very different footballing cultures they've copied the barcelona way so if you look at the england team this summer little guys who can play football like Jaden sancho phil foden uh bakayo saka they don't look like england players do they that's not no. what england players ever look like little guys who can pass they look like barcelona players so you see that England and Germany have copied the Barcelona academy style. And every big academy in England and Germany works like that. It's all about little guys you can pass. And so when everyone is Barcelona, when everyone is the Masia, then the Masia loses its advantage. Simon, you were very enamored by uh, the Masia, I, I felt in the book. I thought, I thought you thought that this was some kind of, you know, it, it came across to me because it was much more than a football academy. It was like a school and there was also manners. They, they, they preached a lot of things about manners. It was more like, a, you know, a rugby school, you know, a private rugby school in Dublin or Paris to me. That's a good analogy. I mean, I thought it was sort of like a, a Catholic seminary where uh, our job is pastoral and we're here to look after the boys. Yeah, maybe a kind of private school without the brutality. I mean, all these yeah. institutions, whether it's private schools or football academies, if you go back 20 years, and I went to a, an English Premier League academy at a big club, biggish club 20 years ago, it was brutal, it was horrible. They shouted at the boys, the coaches, they treated them really horribly. Uh, the boys had a horrible experience. And of course, 90% of them never made it as pros. So you just have this horrible teenage experience and then you're jettisoned. And that was what most football academies are like. And the Masia was never like that. The Masia was, we're going to be nice to these boys. Most of them are never going to play football professionally. Half of the Masia boys go on to university. So even guys who make it, like Guardiola and Iniesta, both started university. And Messi didn't. Messi had no interest in schooling and sort of didn't want to do any of that. But they really take education seriously. They treat you nicely. The boys hug the cook. The boys hug the receptionist. It's, it's a very family. I would send my kids to the Masia. I would not send them to the English Academy I saw 20 years ago. So I, and you think, well, that's nice. But it's more than just nice. It's clever. 
because in a lot of academies, boys drop out because it's just so horrible. And in the Masia, if you're in the Masia, you think this is a nice place, I want to stay. And that, that was one of Barcelona's strengths. Simon Cooper here with us on Caught Offside. You've been so generous with your time. Just a couple more for you. I just I find this all so fascinating. Um, so something you mentioned before about the, the Neymar situation of 2019 when Messi wanted him back and the charade that Barcelona kind of put on during that summer to pretend that they wanted to get him back when in reality they didn't. I hear that. I see what just happened with Messi in these last couple weeks. And I just can't help but wonder if Barcelona employed those tactics again. The idea of Barcelona offering him this contract and then in the 11th hour suddenly saying, we don't know where the money's gone or we don't know how we can make this happen. I'm sorry, the deal's off. It just, something about it just feels off to me. This is pure, purely speculative, almost conspiratorial, but is there legitimacy to that? Is there a possibility that maybe Barcelona never actually wanted Messi back, but had to save face. So they pretended that they had offered him this contract that they in reality knew was never actually going to come to fruition. I think there is something to that. I wouldn't say conspiratorial because I think the club is much more chaotic <laughs> and less foresightful than, than what you're sketching. I think Laporta, the president Juan Laporta, He's a kind of cheerful guy. He's an optimist. He tells a happy story. So he says, you elect me in March and Messi likes me, which is true. And we'll have a barbecue and Messi will agree to stay at Barcelona, which is what all the fans wanted. So they elected Laporte and he had this optimistic story. And it was all nonsense. You know, there was no money and Laporte probably knew that in the spring. And so Laporte keeps saying, yeah, we're talking to Messi. And they really are talking to Messi. And Messi's saying, yeah, I'll cut my salary by half. I want to stay as well. And Laporta is not a guy who can bring the bad news. So he keeps giving this good news story. We're very close to sealing the deal with Leo until it's obvious that this is just unsustainable. And then he says, actually, it's not possible. And I'm bl I blame the previous board, which he, he's right to do because it was the previous president, Bartomeu, who blew all the money. But yeah, Laporta sort of won the election on this falsehood that with me will keep messy. It was a fantasy. Simon, I listened to you last summer when the last Messi um, controversy or whatever you want to call it, furore, was, was brewing. And um, you were preparing for this book and you talked about Messi's life in Barcelona. And I'm not going to say you painted it as a normal life, but it was a cocooned life, a, a, a life of a comfortable life that he enjoyed where he wasn't really hassled. And maybe some of the things that would happen if if uh, if if Messi somehow moved to Hollywood, that kind of intense um, celebrity uh, scrutiny doesn't really happen to him. He has he's able to about, go about his business, drive his kids to school, do all those things. Is that about to change in Paris? And if it is about to change, could that be detrimental to his performance on the field? Yeah, one of the weirdest experiences which you're alluding to that I had while writing the book is I got this woman who lives in Castel de Fels, his small town, to drive me up the hill where he lives. That's right. And it's sort of two mansions, you know, welded together. And it's sort of like you're in a millionaire's neighborhood in California. It's not the richest houses in the world, but clearly the people who live there are millionaires and they have big gardens and he has, you know, uh, trees and plants outside so you can't really see inside. And it's very comfortable. It's sort of boring, suburban. It's 
couple of miles from the sea, not very glamorous, and he has a little football field there that he plays with his sons. He lived a very quiet life, as you say, driving his kids to school. He'd take their family to a local restaurant where they were sat in this little room where the locals knew not to bother them. Very unglamorous life. Every three days you drive to the Camp Nou, you score a hat-trick, you drive home. It's, it's very calm in a way. And I think in Paris, he'll manage to recreate that. I imagine they'll want to live near a Spanish school. I think the reason, he, one big reason he wanted to stay at Barcelona, even though the club is falling apart, is his sons didn't want to go, his wife didn't want to go. They don't want to start a new school and make new friends in a new country. But they'll find, you know, I, I live in Paris myself. They'll find a place outside Paris in one of the suburbs, the countryside, where they'll have a house like that, an experience like that. Messi is not a bright lights, big city kind of guy. Simon, I can't let you go uh, without asking you uh, one question about Cruyff and Guardiola. Uh, there's great detail on Johan Cruyff in this book. It's, it's amazing. And uh, his, his influence on, on football now is still being felt um, and, and will continue to be felt, I'm pretty sure. Uh, but there's one line in it that Guardiola talks about. He's talking about Cruyff and, and risk in the game. And I'm, I'm just curious. He says, if a genius does it right, and that's nearly always, the result is perfect. But if a genius does something wrong, it goes so incredibly wrong that you want to murder him. Only geniuses take those risks. Now, this is Guardiola talking about Cruyff. That, is, is that what Guardiola is doing in these big games, like the Champions League final, where he doesn't play Fernandinho as a, as a holding midfielder? Is that what he did against Leon the previous year? Is this the Cruyff coming out in Guardiola? I mean, one thing I try and show in the book is that Cruyff is the original and Guardiola is the better copy. So Guardiola, Cruyff invented this kind of football and Guardiola copied it, updated it, did it better, more rigorously. And with Cruyff, I mean, they sometimes had the slowest central defense in football. Ronald Koeman, who couldn't run, Guardiola, who couldn't run, neither of them defenders playing central defense mm. on the halfway line. And it's insane. But most of the time it worked. You know, they won the Champions League that way in 92. And Cruyff was always... I'm going to be more radical. I'm going to do it more revolutionary and crazy than anyone else to show I'm a genius. And Guardiola is less of a genius than Crawford. He's more of an organizer. So, yeah, I mean, you can always point to Guardiola likes to tinker with lineups. Guardiola is much more reactive to the other team. Crawford never really watched the opposing team on video. He didn't have the energy, the patience. Guardiola spends two days before a match watching the other team. And then he'll make these very complex tactical adjustments, usually work out well about changing my lineup, and then we're going to find their weak spot. And sometimes it doesn't work out. But with Guardiola, the whole you never see the whole building collapse, really, the way you did with Krauf's teams. So in the 94 Champions League final, it doesn't work out for Barcelona. They lose 4-0 to Milan. You know, the whole thing collapses. Whereas in this year's Champions League final, City Chelsea, you could order, you could argue that Guardiola got things wrong, but what they lose one nil was very close. So Guardiola is a much more rigorous, systematic coach than Krauf is. But I mean, everyone talks about Guardiola. There've been so many books about Guardiola. There's not a book in English about Krauf. And I spent 20 years wanting to write his biography, and in the end, I just kind of put it into this book because he is the most interesting man in modern football history, not Guardiola. Simon, as we as we wind it down here with you. Um... Barcelona, you spoke about La Masia and, you know, its decline in some ways and Barcelona as a club and the shambles state that they're in. For most of us, it's it's almost impossible to envision them as anything other than a soccer superpower. Are, are we on the verge of entering an era where they're like struggling to qualify for, for Champions Leagues? I think we are. I mean, you know, minus Messi, this is a team that finished third in the Spanish League last year 
where Messi carried them. He accounted from January through May for more than half their goals and assists, which is an incredible figure. So you take that out, what's left? A lot of aging players, plus Pedri, Frankie de Jong. You might have to sell those guys in the end. I, I think it's going to be a bleak future. When I was interviewing uh, Barca executives a couple of years ago, they said maybe our future is Manchester United. That, like United post-Ferguson, we don't really win anything anymore, but we're still a big club with a global support, make a lot of money. And that's the optimistic scenario. The pessimistic scenario is you do a Leeds United of 20 years ago and you just collapse. Oh, my God. Maybe it's somewhere between those two. That's that's unbelievable. Uh, with regards to that, I mean, the situation that they're in, is this – It seems the picture that you paint is that this is mostly their own doing. Is that fair? How much of it is a flawed system maybe in La Liga, the pandemic? Is that all just window dressing to the real problem, which was their own mismanagement? I mean, the pandemic hit them really hard, partly because this is a tourist city. So on an average match before the pandemic, you might have 30,000 tourists buying seats from Sosis, the, the club members, and some of that money goes to Barcelona. So you were right. I mean, I, I came with my kids one day researching the book. I, mean, I paid 60 euros per ticket, which is a lot more than Sosis paid. So we paid 240 euros, four tickets, and a lot of that money goes to the club. And you have 30,000 people doing that every match before the pandemic or most matches. And then those people also go to the club museum, the megastore. And so with the pandemic, that ends, that goes to zero. And so they were hit much harder than, say, Real Madrid or Manchester United by the pandemic. But yeah, there were years of mismanagement that preceded that. Barcelona did this to themselves. But remember, before the system blew up, it worked brilliantly for 15 years. Uh, before we go, uh, French football, you live in Paris. I saw a rather fawning a statement from the head of the French professional football leagues today, praising PSG and praising the signing of Messi. And I, I don't know, it, it seemed to me to be a bit over the top considering this is a club signing. Uh, I'm not sure that this is the place for such a person to be commenting on it, but um, it seems like a big deal for French football. How will it change Ligue 1? Well, Ligue 1 had huge financial problems, you know, a big TV deal collapsed. A lot of clubs were kind of on the brink of uh, bankruptcy. And now, you know, they patched up a new TV deal. Now you've got the world's best player and you've got the world's best attack of Messi, Neymar and Mbappe. And, you know, TV stations around the world are going to be buying those rights. And actually, I think PSG got Messi really cheaply. Uh, 35 million euros or so in, in salary and zero transfer fee. So he's getting a quarter of his salary at Barcelona, more or less. And... In return, you can go to every TV station in the world and say, you know what? Do you want to show Paris Saint-Germain on your TV every weekend? I think they'll probably get that 35 million euros back, French people. Yeah, yeah I would think so with ease. Uh, finally, last one for me. I'm so curious just about kind of the mechanics of writing this book because you hit Barcelona. One of the most fascinating times in their history. How were they to deal with? What kind of access were you granted throughout this? I'm just curious about the process of, of writing this book in this time. I have to say Barcelona were real, uh, I hope this doesn't sound sexist, gentlemen. They were incredibly generous. So I wrote an article there in 2019 for my newspaper, the Financial Times, and they opened not all their doors, but lots of their doors. So I interviewed the president, Bartomeu, the head coach, Valverde. Over the years, I interviewed many Barcelona players. And just every interview I asked for, they said yes. And I said, you know, I, I thought about this. I thought there's a book here. You know, as you know, in football, access is very difficult. Doors are always closed. Mm -hmm. Interviews are always supervised. And this was just so generous and open. And I said to my contacts at the club, if I wrote a book, would you still open your doors? And they said, yeah, sure. And so for a year before the pandemic and once during, 
I made multiple visits, I'd send in interview requests, and I did a lot of interviewing people behind the scenes, youth coaches, psychologists, doctors, nutritionists, business executives at the club. I interviewed dozens and dozens of people who worked for the club, as well as the kind of presidents and coaches and players. And so I feel that I've tried to write about them as a workplace. You know, if it were, let's say, a construction site or a bank, who has power, who controls who, uh, what are the arguments, how does it work day to day? That's the kind of picture I've tried to paint. And at the centre of it is Messi because he's the central power broker of the club. So, yeah, the club were great. They didn't ask to read anything beforehand. They didn't try to censor anything. They just let it be. I got an incredibly sweet email from a guy in the press office the other day. He said, I saw you've written the book. I saw it's done. Congratulations. I'm so happy for you. Mm-hmm. And I wrote back and I said, man, you're a gentleman. You know, there's not many clubs that would do that. Fascinating stuff. Simon Cooper, this was awesome. The Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the making and unmaking of the world's greatest soccer club. Highly, highly recommend, of course, in any time, but certainly in this time with Barcelona and Messi front and center on the world stage. Thanks so much for your time, Simon. Best of luck with the book. Thanks very much, guys. Been a pleasure. Fascinating stuff from Simon Cooper. Wow. Uh, can't recommend it enough. Like I said, this, this book is phenomenal, uh, and it sheds so much light on everything that's gone on with this club. Um, just hearing some of what Simon had to talk about there, the idea of Messi and the power that he had gained at this club where they could sign Zlatan Ibrahimovic, one of the biggest egos and names in this sport. And that Messi, after a few months, could just say, nah, nah, this isn't working. Figure that out. Amazing. Just amazing. Like I said, Simon Cooper, the Barcelona Complex, Lionel Messi and the making and unmaking of the world's greatest soccer club. Yeah, check it out. Can't recommend it highly enough. In terms of caught offside, that'll do it for today's podcast. This was a bonus edition to talk more about the messy situation. Uh, but keep your feeds refreshed because coming up on Thursday, we're going to have part two of our EPL preview special. We're going to talk with Danny Higginbotham. Uh, it's a mailbag spectacular. So get all of your questions in, whatever you got. If we didn't address your team or your questions in part one of our EPL special, that's what part two is for, to fill in all the cracks Uh, So I know some of the bigger clubs, Chelsea, Man City, uh, we didn't get too much in on those guys. So, of course, part two, that's what that's for. And if you have questions on those teams or any team, for that matter, send them at COSoccerPod on Twitter, caughtoffsidepod at gmail.com or caughtoffsideespn on Instagram. Looking forward to that. Our thanks again to Simon Cooper. JJ and I will be back with part two of our EPL special on Thursday. So check it out. See ya. You've been listening to the Caught Offside Soccer Podcast. 